Chapter 23 Environmental Protection and Externalities The urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Henry Louis Mencken, Journalist and Cynic A free private city is interested in a clean environment because otherwise it will not be attractive and will have difficulties attracting productive residents. But a clean environment does not require tens of thousands of laws, regulations, and directives. Protection of Individual Rights In principle, environmental protection in the free private city is based on the protection of individual rights. Environmental damage is unthinkable without affecting property, possessions, or persons. Therefore, there is a corresponding right to sue, and it must then be decided by the courts whether the claim is justified. In a free private city, there is no tragedy of the commons because all land, waters, and the like are owned or at least controlled by actors. This applies in particular to the city operator himself, who in addition to his administrative activities is also under private law the owner of land, streets, and squares, and as such can use his right to sue in cases of environmental damage in the interest of the other contract citizens, on behalf of all, so to speak. Even if he sells all the property to others over time, he could still secure a covenant on sale which could grant him the right to claim environmentally relevant damages to the property in question. Or he could have a general right to sue for the impairment of third-party rights by emissions of all kinds, liquids or solids, smoke, noise, even odors. Most textbook problems are thus already solved. If the acts of pollution go beyond the free private city, the host state or neighboring states are also entitled to injunctive relief in addition to those directly affected. Balance of Interests The protection of property cannot be absolute. Otherwise, a landowner could prohibit all vehicles from passing his property because of noise emissions. In the sense of the proposed development of the law by courts, the problem could be addressed by regulating in the citizen's contract that a socially adequate use of property or possessions does not justify a third party's right to an injunction. What is then socially adequate in individual cases would be determined by the courts, for example on the basis of widely recognized thresholds. Of course, these can change over time. While noise from conventional combustion engines is nowadays considered socially acceptable, this may no longer be the case in 25 years' time because quiet modes of transport may be widespread. As always, with indefinite legal terms, a certain vagueness remains. That is unavoidable. Alternatively, or additionally, it makes sense to include certain environmental thresholds in the citizen's contract, possibly graded according to the type of use, higher values in industrial areas, especially in order to minimize the number of lawsuits. This should not affect the possibility of negotiating an agreement with those affected, even if the thresholds are exceeded, according to which they will be paid compensation if they accept the increased emissions. Buying off the plaintiff in this way is not really an option in conventional systems. 
but it does take into account the idea that environmental protection is ultimately about the violation of subjective rights and not objective conditions, that each individual case is different, and that it is those affected who can best find an appropriate regulation. Prevention in some areas, it may be advisable to carry out regular preventative checks because potential damage can be so great that subsequent correction through legal proceedings would be inadequate. For example, an industrial plant whose production process releases high levels of radioactivity or toxic gases might operate for years before nearby residents begin to notice that irreversible damage to their health has already occurred. With larger projects of all kinds, especially, investors will want to know in advance whether their project is feasible or not. Mere reference to a later judicial clarification causes uncertainty and hinders investment. In these cases, a preliminary clarification by means of a permit is recommended. In traditional constitutional states, a permitting procedure is carried out by the competent authority which determines whether or not an approval is granted on the basis of existing law and the criteria specified therein, if necessary with the involvement of affected parties. Appeals may be lodged by the party concerned or by the applicant within a defined period if there is no consent to the decision. If the deadline expires or the court rejects the claims, the approval is legally binding and the investor can be sure that he can go ahead with his project. Such an approach is fundamentally sensible. Similarly, the citizen's contract could stipulate that certain projects, in particular those which are likely to cause significant environmental or health damage to residents, are subject to a permit requirement. Criteria must be specified which shall lead to approval if they are met. This may include the provision of a financial guarantee or the submission of an appropriate insurance policy. In this procedure, the operator of the free private city, the neighbors concerned, and the investor will discuss the situation, and the relevant body will then take a decision. A complaint against this decision is, again, possible. Whether this committee is appointed by the city operator or is better outsourced to an independent private company for reasons of neutrality will be shown in practice. It is quite conceivable that engineering firms or environmental consulting firms will specialize in solving such licensing cases in such a way that an appropriate balance of interests between the parties involved is achieved without unnecessarily hindering the further economic development of the city. Such a procedure is also in the interests of the applicant, because the underlying questions are then clarified, and he does not have to fear numerous legal battles during the operation. Negative externalities Negative externalities are costs or disadvantages that arise in production, but are not incurred by the polluter, but by outsiders, who are unjustifiably burdened by them. One example is air pollution caused by industrial companies or automobile traffic. Since in a free private city the party affected can claim damages or injunctive relief from the polluter for impairments beyond the threshold value, most such cases can be solved with the existing legal instruments. Disadvantages that cannot be clearly assigned to a polluter or do not measurably affect the individual 
for example, car exhaust fumes, which only have a detrimental effect on health in their sum, remain possible targets for regulation. The simplest solution is if the free private city can impose conditions that minimize the negative effects, for example, the provision of catalytic converter requirements. Alternative solutions, such as emission certificate trading or PIJU taxes, have the disadvantage that the costs associated with the externality cannot really be determined and are ultimately arbitrary. Here, all manner of fantastic figures can be pulled out of the air because counter-effects are not included. Linear instead of toxic thresholds are used or simply thresholds are set for political reasons and some market participants are again excluded. Often, such alleged steering taxes are simply an additional source of income for the state. The discussion about externalities also ignores the fact that every human activity has consequences that are not directly priced into products, and cannot be either, because one simply does not yet know what has to be priced in. Every activity, every new product, every new technology has effects that cannot be fully understood and whose consequences in all their facets may only become apparent after decades or even centuries. These can be positive or negative long-term consequences, usually a mixed situation, where we may observe positive developments with negative side effects or vice versa. Consider, for example, the invention of the art of printing, which promoted the spread of knowledge on the one hand and propaganda on the other. Even the production of socks can lead to unforeseen effects, more illnesses because people no longer walk barefoot and are therefore less hardened, which are either negative, neutral, or positive overall. Should the sock manufacturer now pay an externality tax? And who will decide on what basis? One could argue that each additional child causes additional pollution and therefore impose a birth tax. But without children, humanity would die out. The same applies to global warming and an increase in CO2. The latter also means more plant growth and the enabling of land reclamation of former permafrost zones, which in turn feeds more people. To what extent is this included in the price of CO2 certificates? Often, it is simply not possible to determine whether the overall effects will be negative or positive due to the large number of parameters affected. However, the danger of causing more damage than good by arbitrary market interventions is quite real. Thus, it is preferable to set requirements in the final permit on the basis of the known and identifiable effects. Hazard principle trumps precautionary principle. Over time, some things could turn out to be toxic which used to be considered safe. In such cases, the citizen's contract need not be amended as long as there is a clause allowing for a lawsuit to be brought in exceptional cases when scientific progress allows for that kind of a re-evaluation. Any person concerned, such as the neighbor of an establishment in which this substance is manufactured or used, or the city operator on the basis of his contractual right of action, could then assert an impairment of property or health by referring to the corresponding new findings. Alternatively, the adjustment of threshold values may be left to a body which may then act on its own initiative or on request. 
In both cases, it must be assumed that the hazard is real. Therefore, a reason-guided, free private city will fall back on scientifically recognized toxicity limits, such as those developed for work safety purposes. In the course of its development, the human organism has learned to absorb pollutants if they do not exceed certain levels. The dosage makes the poison. Toxic thresholds are based on this principle. On the other hand, for some years now, interested parties have been trying to impose linear thresholds with the unverifiable assertion that a potential pollutant is harmful at any concentration. If the population is only large enough, the statistically linear calculation results in thousands of avoided deaths per year with each reduction of the permitted limit. This is, in light of the absorption capacities of the human body, not only unscientific, but ultimately also a license to destroy any industrial and agricultural production by arbitrarily lowering thresholds. There is also expressly no precautionary principle in the free private city in such a way that any theoretically conceivable damage would justify prohibiting new projects and technologies. The principle of damage, real damage has occurred, and the principle of hazard, damage is probable and specific damage expected, applies in favor of innovation. Anyone who affirms a strict precautionary principle, as the affluent societies of the West are increasingly doing today, should already have banned fire. Risk aversion is gradually transforming dynamic communities into prohibitive societies. This is supposed to be distinctly different in free private cities.